0: Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of LifeHouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. All right, part three of the blessed life. Does anyone here want to be blessed? If you don't, you're not breathing, right? You have a desire to be blessed, there is no doubt. But at the same time, we can have the right desire but the wrong destination. We can have a right desire to be blessed but have a wrong destination and definition of what blessed is. So today, we're going to to dive in deeper to what this word blessed is and what it actually means and how it applies to us, All right? But at the same time, we're gonna do something really quick, would you all just just stand up with me. We're going to do our prayer of receptivity, of, of just basically as we dive into God's Word, I know this, you've got a lot going, going on. You're probably here today thinking about your finances, thinking about your family, thinking about what you're going to possibly eat whenever you leave here. You've got a lot going on. And what the what, what, what the caution is, is we can be present but not here. We can be physically here but not but not emotionally mentally present to let God speak to us, challenge us and change us. And what this prayer and what this prayer has become for us is this a time of resetting, clearing things out and saying, "God, my heart's open, my mind's open. I need you to speak to me today because I sincerely believe this book has the power to change your life." It's not that God isn't speaking, it's many times we're distracted. And we've got to say, "God, I want to block out distractions and I want you to speak to me today and what this prayer is it's a declaration for us to say God I'm all ears I'm listening challenge me, transform me and change me amen the way we're going to do this, I'm going to speak or I'm going to start praying we've we've had a couple of fun times with this where, where we've had false starts hey you know what Jesus forgives us He loves us He knows we're human right So here's the thing right I'm going to pray or or I'm going to start praying and and if you would join in with me as I pray okay spirit of god prepare my heart to receive god's word today i lay down my current fears frustrations burdens worries and anxious thoughts give me ears to hear a heart that is hungry for revelation and an urgency to obey and put into practice what i hear today In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. We're talking about this word, blessed. You can have the right desire, but the wrong destination. And our struggle is is that we live in a culture that tries to define what blessed is, typically by what's in our bank account, having a good 401k, having a great vacation, having a good job, having good friends and family, the absence of, con, con, of conflict. Our culture is defining for us what is blessed and our struggle is living in light of what God calls blessed while we are in a culture fighting against what that definition is. Right? One of the things that the, Pastor Telvin brought up a couple weeks back that I just want to continually hit on and challenge us with, he says this, or, or, or Greg, Greg Boyd said this, said you can't, get the kingdom into people until you can get America out of people. Because we have a culture, we have a definition of what blessed is and we've got to almost deconstruct what the cultural definition that we have been discipled by and construct a brand, a brand new definition of what Jesus says. It's culture versus kingdom. We have to, to get the culture out of us so we can get the kingdom into us. And what we have been studying is Matthew chapter five where we have been studying the B attitudes in a, in a sermon called the Sermon on, on the Mount, which is one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And we've been going through a series of about 11 verses that talk on what Jesus calls blessed. And today we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, and we're going to actually read those together. And then we're going to break them down and find out a little bit more about what Jesus calls blessed. If you were not here last Sunday, it was a miracle. You might, you might say, John, what are you talking about? I preached for 31 minutes last, last week. That's a miracle. A stuttering guy preaching for 31 minutes. That's a miracle. You know, you got water, water, he got water into wine, and John, we're preaching for 31 minutes. It's like, it's a, it's a miracle. I'm not going to promise that today, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, but... If you weren't here last Sunday, you can actually go online, church, church, church app, SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever, and you can download last week's sermon. I think that it will be helpful for you. So we're in Matthew chapter five, verse six through eight. It says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We're gonna first off here focus on Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me tell you what I think this is actually saying. It says, blessed are you when you have an appetite for the right things. Blessed are those who have a shift in their appetites. Appetites are a funny thing. Because in our culture, our culture doesn't tell you manage your appetites. They tell you indulge them. Do we see how, how destructive a life of unrestrained appetite can lead to destruction? Have you seen, seen this? You have, you have a culture telling you, do what feels good. Do you. Why are we the most medically, excuse me, medicated through a bunch of antidepressants? Why are we bound by so many different addictions? Is it because of what our culture is telling us? Just fulfill your appetites. Whatever feels good, do it. Andy Stanley, he says three things, rightly so, about this whole concept, appetites, that I just want to share with you really quick. First off, it says, God created them, but sin destroyed them. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And thirdly, your appetite always wants what it wants now, never later. I wanna give commentary on a couple of these here really quick, first off, when it says, God created them, but sin destroyed them. Appetites aren't bad. You have an appetite for food, right? That's not a bad thing, God God created food. It's good, food's good, right? You have an appetite for, everyone everyone just take a deep, sexual pleasure, okay? Take a deep breath. Everyone just take a deep, deep breath. Pastors said sex in church. Yeah, God created sex. The Bible talks a lot about sex, okay? You have, got it? Some of y'all are like, oh my God. What kind of church? If it's your first time here, I'm sorry. I challenge you to come back a a couple more weeks. But here's, here's, what I'm saying is, is is that the the desire, appetite isn't wrong because God gave you them. Those things in and of themselves are not wrong, but it is the consequence and result of sin that destroys them and jacks them up. So here's the thing, we've got to stop saying, see, and this is what Christians have done so many times, is they say because something can be abused, we say you just don't do it. So what they're actually doing is they're putting a rule in front of the rule to keep you from breaking the rule. And you've seen churches do this where they say, "Well, you could get drunk. Never drink." I just don't see that in the Bible. Now, that better be an alarm for Jesus. Okay, I don't know whose phone that is, but that better be Jesus telling you something. Now, nah. here's the thing, right? And you've had church. You can look throughout church history, and you can see how churches have told the people in the church, "Don't have sex. It's bad." I'm not even. I'm not even making this up. It's absolutely crazy. Don't have sex because it's. Bad when what, they, when what they actually miss is the fact of God isn't against the desire. God is, is, is uh, against an unrestrained, unfiltered, ungodlike appetite ruling you. Because God knows this. An unrestrained, unmanaged appetite isn't for your benefit. It will lead to your utter destruction. Let's put some context to it. In our country, like I said, food isn't bad but do we see the consequences of unrestrained, unmanaged appetites where people cannot say no to food? It starts off, you eat to live, and then you live to eat. And you are controlled and ruled by a desire and by your appetite. Let's take sexual, sexual pleasure. We can see sex isn't bad. God created sex. God was the one that said, be fruitful and multiply. That's, that must be Greek, Hebrew for do it. And then you got the consequence. So God isn't against the desire, but what you see, do we see the result in our culture of unmanaged sexual appetites? We have such an interesting culture. We have one side that says that one of the best-selling books of all time is Fifty Shades of Grey. But then we've got, guess what? Me too movement. Do you see how different these are? You've got a book movie based on domination and then a whole right movement that I, yes, but we're in conflict here, y'all. We have a culture that says indulge, but then we get mad at the consequence of indulging. So here, here, here's what we got to do. Our, our appetites, if not filtered through God's, through God's word, if not controlled and managed, they end up leading to our destruction. Secondly, Stanley said this, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Meaning this, because they can never be satisfied, they must be managed. They must be managed, meaning you've got to establish some sort of discipline and restraint and truth around those desires you have, those appetites you have. Because this is true, right? You, you think if I just get one more of this, then I'll be happy. This is the way lust works. The whole idea behind lust is if I just get her, if I just get that, then I'll be happy. No, what you're actually doing is you're making your appetite bigger and bigger and harder to satisfy. That's why you see many guys going from girl to girl to girl. Well, if I get hurt, then I'll be happy. If I get hurt, then, no, you won't. There isn't an amount of women that you will ever have if you don't find satisfaction in God's standard and manage your appetites. But this goes in so many different ways, whether, whether it's sex or whether it's food or whether it's pleasure or whether it's hobbies. Do we see we've got to make sure that we check our appetites, I believe this, those that that follow Christ, one of the greatest examples, one of the greatest representations, one of the greatest witnesses that we can ever give to the world is as a follower of Christ, our appetites change. Where what we desire shifts from it being about us and pleasing our flesh to pleasing God. The truth is this, what you feed grows. What you feed grows. And the the Bible talks about this whole dichotomy of you can fulfill your flesh, and you can fulfill that and just have an unrestrained appetite, and you'll have the the consequences of that. But then it also talks about fulfilling the appetite of your spirit, what God wants. Because let's be honest, God, we're, we're in this battle. We got what we want and what God wants. Hello. And what you find is you think, well, if I start serving Jesus, it'll all just be good now. I'll just want what God wants. No, he won't. Don't you find yourself in this battle of, I know what God wants and I wanna do it, but I'm having a hard time doing it. And you find yourself fulfilling the flesh. So you're, we're doing the complete opposite of what Jesus said. We're not, here's the thing, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're hungering and thirsting in the flesh. And, what's, and, and what Jesus says here is that a blessed person I believe this, a blessed person is one that can manage and then reorient your priorities, reorient your appetites where you can say no. If you can't say no to something, it rules you. It is your God. Do you even have a desire for what God wants? See, here's a here's the thing, right? We're, we're stuck in this, like, you know, we're stuck in this dichotomy, and I totally get it, right? I mean, I I feel it. Like it's not, well, you're Pastor John. No, I feel it. I feel this tension of what God wants, what I want. And and what I always thought, I just, God, take away these desires. God, take away this desire for this. Take away this desire for that. And that's the way that we're kind of taught to, just like pray many times, is just, just, you should feel bad for having the desire, and then you should just try to get rid of it by any means possible, which I believe it's a combination of spiritual and and practical that helps you manage the appetites, the urges, and the desires that are God-given, but they need to be done through the lens of the gospel and done, and and here's here's the thing, right? Managed. I say this, we don't need less desire, we need stronger ones. We don't need less desire, we need stronger ones, right? Where, you know, we pray, God, take away drinking, and sex, and porn, and cussing, and you know what what's whatever, in your life. And I thought this way for a long time, and I thought it was, God, give me less desire, but C.S. Lewis says this here. It says, it would seem that our, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling them out with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I don't believe we need less desire, we need stronger ones. Love what Thomas Chalmers says, he says, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough, but what can be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You need to stop praying for less desire and start praying for stronger ones. What, What I have began to kind of start praying is, God, let me love and desire the pain of discipline more than the pain of foolishness. Because either way, it's gonna be hard. And you can continue along with the pain of your foolish decisions. Or you can continue in the direction of saying, I will, I, Lord, help me to love the sweet taste of discipline, pain. It's kind of a, I don't know, this is just it. This is in my brain. I don't know if this is making sense. But it's just like, God, give me a, don't just let me want, less of, of, of something. Let me have a stronger desire for what pleases God more than what is easy and feeds my flesh. And take my desires, take the different, the, the different appetites that I have and reorient them and help me to manage them so I'm not overcome by them, but you use them for God's glory and for your good. Jesus had a hunger ultimately for what pleased his father. Love what John chapter 4 says. This is, you know, this right here, let me set up context here. This is Jesus, and he's just got done talking to the Samaritan woman and seeing an amazing move of God there. And, and, and then it kind of jumps in here. It says, Meanwhile, his disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something. Like, bro, you just got that ministry. You just got that preaching like 10 services. Like you you need a subway sub, Jesus. You need some Gatorade. Like you need some, you need some carbohydrates. You need something. And then Jesus says, hey, I want to tell you something. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, and I love the disciples, well, could someone have brought him food? Was it not us who brought him food? But he says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. He said, what feeds my soul isn't the physical food. It's the food that I, it's what I taste as I fulfill God's will. And that is my desire for, for you, is that we would be a people hungering and thirsting for what God desires, and that we would manage and reorient and, re, and reorient the God-given appetites we have that bless you but also bless God. Do you see this? My food. Have you ever heard of the keto diet? There's some people hating on it. There's some people loving it, hating it. You know, I mean, it's your kind of typical diet thing, right? Like some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people call it a farce. Some people call it great. Let me tell you the science behind the keto diet. It's basically this. You're switching your source. Where that's why it says cut the carbs. No carbs, because when your body is deprived of carbs, it switches its fuel source. To then it goes to fat. So now instead of using carbs to fuel your energy and fuel your body, it then switches its source to the stored fat in your body and the stored fat is then used as energy to fuel you. What I'm praying for our church is that we would have a switch of the source, is that we would no no longer have a desire to be fueled by what our flesh desires, but we would switch its source and say, I want the fuel to be a passion and desire to fulfill God's work and God's will. Does that make sense? So much more I could say here, but we gotta move on. Secondly, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are those who give others what they themselves need and want. That wasn't the actual scripture, that that was my interpretation of it. Go back, we gotta actually read scripture. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. My interpretation says, blessed are those who give others what they themselves need and want. It's crazy today how many of us will beg God today in this place, have mercy on me, but not give it on Monday. There's an important, dif- there's an important dif- dif- differenti- differentiation here. Forgiveness and mercy are different. Forgiveness deals with the inward emotions, the bitterness, anger. Mercy deals with the outward consequences. Mercy is you not getting what you deserve. James 2.13 tells us this. It says, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Mercy-filled people understand one day they're gonna stand before the judge and they realize they are not the judge. And since they're not the judge, they judge others differently in light of their coming judgment. In this world, we have a unique mixture of justice and mercy. And we're going to get into this here soon, but honestly, many of us would say, but John, what about? But John, what about? And we're gonna go there. But first off, I wanted to give us an encounter that Jesus had that shows us how to have this mercy that God says we should have. It's it's in Matthew 10, 25 through 37. It's a pretty well-known parable Jesus said. It says, that is not it. (laughs) (laughs) That is not the right parable. So, uh, awkward. Let's see here, um, the Good Samaritan. Maybe it's Luke 10. Oh, yep, Luke, Luke 10, sorry guys. Sorry, sorry team, my bad. I need mercy, You give me some mercy. Yes, okay, there we go, all right. The parable of the Good Samaritan and we all probably heard, heard this before says, on one occasion, an expert in the law, so a lawyer, stood up and to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's, he's a lawyer, so he's one of those guys. If you are a lawyer here, we love you. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he was obviously a Jew. It says, when he was attacked, then he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, see Jesus is getting into there, you know, Jesus is digging down here. He's saying a priest, so basically a pastor. A pastor happened to be walking down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, and honestly, Levite is someone that has good blood in them; They are kind of like the chosen race. It says, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan. And when, Je- when Jesus brought, brought up a Samaritan, and he's gonna make the Samaritan the hero of, of this story. Do you know what Jesus is actually? And I mean, y- we don't understand the cultural tension here. The cultural Push that Jesus is going here of saying, you need to redefine how you place people in your mind, in your heart. How we can classify people based on race, gender, socioeconomic status. What Jesus is saying, he's taking somebody that the Jews saw as being dogs, half-breeds, as being that in the sight of God, they would actually pray in their synagogues, thank God I'm not a Samaritan. And Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, is taking a Samaritan and saying, I'm going to make him the hero of the story. It says this, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two different denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for." any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, Jesus is asking them, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This man could not even bring him. This says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This man could not even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He hated him so much. He said, I guess the one who had what? Mercy. The one who gave him what he didn't deserve. But this was a Process. There were four things here that I want to just bring out in this story really quick that we see that cultivates mercy in us. If we could bring those up see, feel, do, even to your enemy. It says, it says, the, the Samaritans saw the man. Do you even see? Do you even notice those that need mercy? Or are you so laser focused on you? and you getting justice and you getting what you deserve. Feel, it says he took pity on him. Mercy is cultivated with what we see but then cultivated into what we feel. And then it says, see here's the thing, we can feel pity but not do anything. It says he did something practical. Two denarii is two days wages. He, he put some money, then he said, if I leave, I come back, I'll pay whatever. But then he even did this to someone that if he was a Jew and he was a Samaritan, would be considered his enemy. I believe true, unfiltered, Christ-like mercy is one where we see, feel, do even to those that we would consider enemies. And let's be honest, we don't have many enemies, but we have many enemies here and here. And you know who they are at your job. You know who they are in your family. You know who they are in your common context of whatever social realm you're in. And it's those people that God says, if you want mercy, you better give it. But John, what about, I understand this. John, what about, what about my child who will not listen to me? (laughs) John, I got an employee that just won't hit his goals, that just will not help, that just will not get done what needs to get done. I have a spouse that keeps cheating on me and is abusive. What about John, what about someone that breaks laws continually and continually? How do we battle with, wrestle with, this idea of mercy and standard that Jesus calls us to, while also knowing God isn't just a God of mercy, he's also a God of justice? I believe the greatest example that we see in this, i don't to call it mixture of justice and mercy is the cross. What, what theologians have said is that on the cross, we see justice and mercy kissing. How? Just, just, justice is being served. The penalty, what Jesus did on, on the cross is him getting what you deserved. But also, there was a justice aspect to it of the wrath of God, the penalty for sin being paid and given, justice being served somebody paying the penalty for our sin. We see that on the cross. So in this world of justice and mercy, where's the balance, what do we do? I love what John, what John Piper says. He's a lot smarter than I am, so I'm gonna read what, what he says. He says, if we ask, how shall we know when to do justice and how to show mercy? I would answer that it's by getting as close to Jesus as you possibly can. I know of no hard and fast rules in scripture to dictate for every situation and I don't think this is an accident the aim of scripture is to produce a certain kind of person, not provide an exhaustive exhaustive list of rules for every situation. The beatitude says, blessed are the merciful, not blessed are those who know exactly when and how to show mercy in all circumstances. We must be merciful people even when we act with severity in the service of justice. He keeps on saying this. He says, so to answer the question, should a merciful person always show mercy? mercy is a qualified no. Hold on though. You will often support the claims of justice and recompense a person the way he deserves in order to bear witness to the truth of God's justice and to accomplish a greater good for greater numbers of people. But I say it is a qualified no because if you are a merciful person, then even the way you discipline a child or prosecute a criminal or dismiss an employee will be different. The mercy will show and the parent may cry. The attorney may visit the criminal and his family and the employer may pay for training. The heart of mercy will show. Even in justice, the heart of mercy will show. This This could apply itself. If you have a spouse that is consistently abusing you, physically, verbally, if it's physically, you need to go to the authorities because you're not helping him. You're enabling him. If he's cheating on you, there needs to be something where you need to go to somebody, a marriage counselor, a pastor, you can can come to me. I would love to speak to your husband or speak to your wife, whoever, okay? Where if there's consistent cheating going on, if there are, you're not helping them by sweeping it under the rug. You're actually enabling them. But this is such a t- balance, y'all. And what he said, there's not a right or wrong answer for each person, it depends on the, the situation. You gotta get the closest Jesus as you possibly can. As we're in this fallen world of justice, mercy, there's not a clear, distinct answer for every situation. That is why you need counsel. It's scripture says, this, in the abundance of many, there is wisdom. In the abundance of wise counselors, there is wisdom. And so here's the thing, right? I think what, what, what Piper said here is closing out when he said, um, the heart of mercy will show. Do you have a heart of mercy? Even when you're disciplining your child, is, is there a remorse? Is it done out of, of discipline or is it done out of what? Anger. You've got to check your heart and say, God, the reason that that I'm doing this, the reason that I'm wanting to do this, have I explored all other ways of showing mercy? When you get to that point where it's like something has gotta be done, there's gotta be some justice served here, not only is it then you're acting in justice, but you're also acting in a heart of mercy. Why? Because you see, feel, do even with your enemy. That's a tough one, isn't it? Last one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I believe this, blessed are those who focus on their heart, not just their behavior. I'm going to give you a, a little scriptural, I don't call it, escapade, talking about the heart, because the heart's a deep thing. The heart, you know, is, is, you know, this is a deep, deep topic, and the Bible has a lot to say about the heart. And by the heart, it's a kind of catch-all word that means the center of who we are, Motives, intentions, inclinations, conscience. It's the seat of our emotions, appetites, and passions. A few things scripture says about the heart it says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. Excuse me, Jeremiah 17, 9. If you don't have that, I apologize. That would be John Ware's fault. I need mercy. Jeremiah 7, 7, 17, 9 says, says this. I thought it was gonna be on there. I need to get on it. It's on, y'all are amazing. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So, you know, here's what our, here's what our culture says. Follow your heart. No. Don't do that. Because I think we can say, like, our heart. Without the gospel, our heart, without it being redeemed, our heart without a God filter on it, isn't good. And and it's like our heart is deceptive. Don't follow your heart. But God's promise to us is found in, in Ezekiel 36, 26, where here's the thing. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, is prophesying. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart... A flesh. This is his promise to us, as followers of Christ, that he would give us a not just a new body whenever we die, but a new heart when we're here. First Samuel six sixteen seven says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not consider his appearance or his heart, for for I have rejected him." The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks past the outward and into your heart. Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus starts saying stuff like this. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the dish, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, Jesus says this, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Wow. Guard your heart. Your heart is the seat of where everything you do, everything you say comes from. Now, here's the balance, right? When, whenever we've kind of got this whole co- concept, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We've got to have two distinctions here, okay? So, f- so follow me on this. We're doing great on time. I mean, praise God, right? We're doing great on time. Okay, here's the thing, right? There is a work that God does for us and a work that God does in us. So let me break down these distinctions really quick because when I say pure heart, there's two aspects to this. First off, there is something that Jesus does for us on on the cross that gives us a new heart, okay? New and pure are different, okay? Okay? New is you put your faith and trust in Christ, and he gives you a new heart, new desires. He, he, for you, you could not earn it, grab it, get it, whatever, Jesus freely gives it to you because of what he did on the cross, in your place, and for your sin, justice, mercy, kiss. He gives you a new heart. But new and pure are different. One is instantaneous. Pure, new is instantaneous. Pure is a journey. Is this making sense? I hope so, because I don't want to, because here's the thing, I don't want to confuse you. Right, to where there's a work that God does for us, he gives us a new heart, but then there's a work that God does in us where we have to work together with God to keep what he's given us pure. He gives us a new heart, but then we have to work hand hand in hand with him, guarding it to keep our heart pure. Your heart is like a pool. Think of your heart like a pool. Think about a pool. What happens to pools? They get dirty. Kids poop in them. Kids pee in them. Bugs get in them. The natural cause of what a pool does, the natural flow of life for a a pool is it gets dirty. But what purifies the pool? A system. Some of y'all are getting this. A system, a filtration system that is put into place to keep the pool pure. You need a filtration system to keep your new heart pure. What is your filtration system to cultivate purity in your heart? Somebody, oh John, here we go, he's getting legalistic. Because you you know what, I'm gonna tell you, what are you watching? What are you listening to? Who Who are you giving your ear to? What are you allowing in that you don't even have your filtration system on? And it's just coming in and contaminating your new heart. But you need a system, church. Here's the thing, right? I think in church, what, what we've done, right, is we've, in some ways, we've called legalism, we've called, we've, we've replaced, I don't know what I'm trying to say. What we're calling legalism is actually wisdom. They say, oh, you know, I'm just going to watch these shows. I'm going to do this and that. How can you watch and listen to that and it not pollute your heart? But what is the system you have to, is there even a thought process? Is there even a system that you have in place where if it does get contaminated, if your new heart does get contaminated, that you have a system to get that out? I love what John 1 9 says, or 1 John 1 9 says. It says, Look, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. One of the best ways, one of the best systems is to confess your sin. And I know this isn't popular preaching, y'all. This isn't. But Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. So they will do what? They'll see God. You wanna see God work? You wanna see God move? Strive to have a pure heart. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about being better than someone else. I'm pure, they're they're not. That's the worst form of impurity is self-righteousness. The worst. No, it's not a purity to impress people. It's a purity to see God. And see how God's working, how God's moving, what God's speaking, what God's doing. It takes a purity of heart and a desire for that purity but we gotta have a system, church. You got to have a system. It's not legalism. It's not trying to say you're better, but it just might be wisdom. There might be some people you might need to start stop telling everything to. There might be some people you might need to stop having them in your life because all they do is agree with you when they need to stop agreeing with you and start telling you the truth. Hello. What system is in place to keep your heart pure? Because your heart's like a pool. It's gonna get dirty, there's no doubt about it. Life is hard, sin, all this stuff. You need a system. We're gonna have the keyboard come up. We're closing out. The blessed life Actually, hold on, Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. Everyone say no. To ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Why wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify. God's desire is to have a people that are pure. Is to have a people that are not diluted or polluted, but have a blessed, focused, a blessed life of saying, I want to be pure in heart, not so I can be better than everybody, but so I can see how God's moving and what God's doing. The blessed life's this, what we learn today. The blessed life is you have an appetite for the right things. Hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Secondly, you give others what you need and want. You have a heart of mercy. Thirdly, blessed are those, though, that, 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 that focus on the heart, not just your, be, not, not, not just your behavior. Because God is more concerned about your heart than he is about what you do. If he's got your heart, you don't, he won't have to worry about what you do because your heart will be right. Your heart will be centered. Your heart will be right. Your greatest need and Jesus' greatest purpose met. We did not need some other, some other teacher telling us what we need to change. We needed something that could actually come, somebody that could actually come and change our hearts. We have what the world needs, church. We don't need social reforms, good. Putting laws into place is good. All of those things are good, but they are bandages on a gaping womb called our heart. And what Jesus came to do is to not just start another religion, not just start Another cool philosophy that we can find what is might be good. He came to delve down into the crevices of our messed up, jacked up, just as Jeremiah said, our deceitful, wicked hearts that turn from God. And he came to change it, to give you a turn, change from a heart of stone to a heart that seeks God, a heart that that desires purity, a heart that says, I'll manage appetites, a heart that says, I'll give what I want. I'll give mercy. Y'all, the blessed life, isn't what our culture is trying to disciple you into telling you. More money, all of these things. All of that is based on what you have. Jesus is more concerned about the kind of person you're becoming. That's why you see in these beatitudes, blessed are those who are this, blessed are those who are this, he's trying to form a certain kind of person, not give a person a certain kind of social status. So my heart for you today, church, could we all stand up? My heart for us today, church, is that we would redefine blessing, not according according to, according to what our culture says, but according to what God says, according to what God calls blessed. I want you to go last week, if you weren't here last week, go back and check out last week's sermon, last week's and this week's combined. I want you to go check it out, and we're creating this list of what Jesus calls blessed, and that's where we wanna fall in line with and have our destination, in in the right place so we have the right right definition so we can build our life on what Jesus truly calls blessed. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you again for joining us on the LifeHouse Newport News podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, Feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchinning.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much, and God bless.